This is the Upgraded Life Podcast, and if you struggle with high blood pressure, you've been told that you have hypertension, this is going to be a great episode for you because I am going to interview a cardiologist named Dr. Jay Shaw. So I won't waste any more of your time. Let's get into it. This is a great conversation, and I learned so much about heart health, hypertension, and high blood pressure. So let's buckle up and go for a ride on the Upgraded Life Podcast. Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Upgraded Life podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Sotelo. The Upgraded Life is my personal project where I help people realize and reach their potential. I've been a professional helper for 20 years. Here's what I'm convinced of. The life that you have right now and the life that you want tomorrow is a product of your personal mindset, mission, and movement. Each episode of the Upgraded Life podcast is going to give you something that you can do as soon as the episode is over to upgrade your personal mindset. Your mindset informs your mission. Your mission tells you how to move every single day. And together, that is the Upgraded Life. I am here with Dr. Jay Shaw, and I'm excited to have Jay here with us And because I think his message is important, and I know his message is particularly important to me in my life. So I am excited to learn from him, to engage with him, and to help him spread his critical message to my audience and beyond. Jay, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So you're a medical doctor. That's right. I'm a cardiologist. I've been in practice for over 15 years and, uh, you know, large academic institutions like Mass General and Mayo Clinic, as well as started my own practice and, and built um, scratch. So sort of wide variety of experience in the, in, in the medical system. Sure. So when I hear, you know, the label, the title cardiologist, you know, there's some ideas that come to mind, but maybe, maybe walk us through, you know, what does that actually mean to go through medical school and then to do whatever you need to do to, to earn that right to call yourself cardiologist? Sure. So I, uh, medical school starts obviously after a university degree and four year process going through medical school. And I did my medical school at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. So it was a great, great, very practical, very hands-on city general hospital, sort of, you know, really a lot of practical experience. And I really enjoyed that. And after four years of medical school, the next step would be doing an internal medicine residency. So all cardiologists are subspecialists of internal medicine. And so you have to become an internal medicine doctor first. So you go through an internal medicine residency. I did mine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. That's a three-year program. So this is now after the four years of medical school. So it's at least three years of further training, again, practical experience in the hospital and clinics with other doctors that are supervising and, and educating. And then and after that process, then people who are internal medicine trained then decide if they want to specialize or subspecialize. One of the subspecialties is cardiology. And so that's what I chose to do. And so then that triggers another three or four year fellowship, it's called. So I did that at Washington University in St. Louis. So yeah, it is a bit of a long process. And, you know, but in the end, it's highly necessary. It's that people refer to medicine as a practice of medicine, people, that we all hear that, right? I don't think people quite realize that that is exactly what it is. It is practice. You have to do it again and again and again, thousands of times to really become good at it. And that's what medical school residency fellowship give you as a starting point. And then after four years, three or four years of fellowship, then you've, you know, hopefully you take the boards, you can pass all the exams, do all the stuff, and you've earned your right to call yourself a cardiologist. But the truth is that for all physicians starting out in practice, the first, even after all that training, the the most instructive time in our career, physician's career, practicing physician's career, is the first three to five years in real practice after where you don't have supervision back, you know, 30 other doctors that you can ask necessarily right off the hand. And so that's, that's the, that, that's really where, you know, your education meets reality. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm just curious, you know, just so for my own, my own benefit. So, so back up to that part of uh, all cardiologists are also internal medicine specialists or what, whatever phrasing you use. So what is entailed with internal medicine? Internal medicine is basically the general field of 
practice a medicine of adults, usually adult medicine, where where you would go see a primary care physician or an internist or generally internal medicine or family practice. And and they that training is very broad and you you know really get exposure and training and experience in, you know, the entire spectrum of diseases, every different types of organ systems, age span of 18 up to well there is no top of age span. And so you really get this very broad experience and it prepares you for a, a general practice, a, you know, either a, a primary care type of practice or a, or a hospital medicine practice where you could see virtually any patient as an adult patient and at least, you know, have a very good way to sort of understand and build a framework. And then if you needed help, or if, if the patient needed some specialized help, then you might refer them on to a subspecialist in a very specific area. But generally internal medicine physicians are able to deal with a majority of, of initial complaints, concerns, and issues. Yeah. So, so if I make a, an appointment with a physician, there's a good chance that they, you know, are internal medicine or what was the other discipline that you named family, family practice or internal medicine. Yeah. In, 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 in essence, primary care physicians or internists are either one of those two specialties. They might have other specialties mixed in some, some do some endocrinology as well. Some do some others, but generally they, the Blog, the basic main common training is internal medicine, family practice. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, thanks for breaking that, that down for me. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Think things that you, you just don't know, right? You just see the white <laughs> coat and you just assume, right? Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. What made you the idea or the vision for your life that, that becoming a doctor was the thing for you? Well, I think like a lot of physicians and some, you know, my, my dad was a physician. So that like, the first exposure to, to medicine was through watching him and how, how that sort of practice, you know, went and what he was able to do and relationships with patients. And I think that was, was a very positive influence. And so that's what initially got me thinking about it. And as I went through school, you know, I really enjoyed the sciences, especially biologic sciences. And so it made a lot of sense to me. And and I wasn't a, I never really was that enthusiastic about, you know, research in the way that you know, people think about labs and microscopes and machines and that kind of thing. I enjoyed the the personal aspect of it. And so I really enjoyed building relationships with people. I always have. So in, in a way, it sort of married sort of these scientific disciplines and ideas that I really enjoyed with the sort of social and relationship aspects of, of practicing medicine. And, and of course, generally helping at, at maybe some of their most vulnerable or critical periods. And so that's, that's sort of what led me down the road of, of being a dip, you know, being a doctor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And was that something that when you went into undergraduate, like you knew, I mean, were you automatically pre-med and this is, this is the path I'm on or what, what was that journey like for you? I, I did, you know, for me that that I was fairly, you know, focused on, on medicine from the beginning. I think there, but, but people in medicine come from all different backgrounds and walks of life these days and all different types of undergrad degrees end up, you know, in medical school. But it is one of the fields that that is un, somewhat fortunate and unfortunately requires a fair bit of like advanced planning. And it's it's not and sometimes you see, you know, people who end up in law school who have done economics or English degrees or science degrees, but they end up in law school. It's generally the pathway into medicine right now is fairly tracked. I think there's some downsides to that, but that's just generally how it is. So yeah. Well, I understand that because I was pre-med in undergrad. So yeah, okay, yeah. But I, I'm a fake doctor, though. I'm not a real doctor. No, no, no. That's not. That's not right. No, it's just yeah. It does. And I get that because I'm in. You know, it is kind of that. You know, potentially as a running joke, but you know, in my field, you know, you have you have your your in the field of mental health, right? You have your pecking order psychologists mm. and psychiatrists, and then the rest of us. Sure. And so, so I'm I'm neither a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and, and for better or for worse, the psychiatrists were quick to assert the 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 pecking order. Mm, yeah, know, real I doctors can, versus fake doctors. Right? I can so, I can understand how that can happen, but I'm sure that there are plenty of avenues and plenty of opportunities to still you know help a lot of people in the in in your absolutely yeah yeah yeah. yeah. And also, I, th I think it it has some merit when you think about when you do as the way that you just explained, you know, you can't just study yourself through medical school, right? You have to, you have yeah. to sacrifice and you have to engage in the process, you know, process covers, you know, the better part of two decades, right? And so oh, it sure does. It, yeah. You know, that's true. And I think that that, of course, it does have merit. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say otherwise. You know, I also think, though, 
that that medicine and physicians and healthcare system in general is not really built to cope with sort of broader chronic issues, chronic diseases. Mental health is a good example of that. You know, hypertension and, and other chronic diseases are good examples where I'm trained as a cardiologist, but very much that training, that focus, that the whole system is built around reactive care. You know, when something goes wrong, when there's an event, when there's an issue rather than preventive care. And I think that there's a lot of white space and opportunity to fill in around the, maybe the foundation of you know, the traditional health system. Yeah. I can't wait to dive into that. And so, but before we get there, so why, why cardiology, you know, when you have, cause I'm sure you have lots of, of, of options to choose from, right? Yeah. 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 That was a struggle. You know, you have to choose from all these different options. You don't really know at the time you're choosing what practice is like, you know, you don't have a great sense of that in your residency, but I chose cardiology because it had a lot of opportunity to do, to be a doctor that could mean many different things. You can be a procedural specialist and be a cardiologist. You can be a imaging sort of, even almost like a radiologist and within cardiology, you can really exclusively see patients and, and, build out robust clinics in cardiology. And with all those opportunities, there are clear and very well-known and very helpful treatments for a lot of the problems that we see. And that was very encouraging. Like you really can help people, whereas sometimes some fields, as much as they can help people, there are certain mysteries of, of diagnoses. There's few therapeutic options. There aren't that many sort of significant procedures that can really turn someone's symptoms around. And it can be frustrating. With cardiology, you actually can really, there is a lot of innovation that has been done in treatment of the diseases and a lot of potential to really make a difference in someone's life. So that's what, in, you know, those are the reasons really that led me down that road. So the, so the optionality that was attached to being yeah. a cardiologist was appealing to you. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And because I didn't know, actually, I, I didn't like the ideas. I liked the concepts. I liked the, the sort of field and the, and the, physiology, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the end of, at the end of the day. So it gave me that optionality that I could be a cardiologist trained to be, but I could still pick, you know, kind of where I wanted to work, how I wanted to work, what, you know, all those kind of things. And yeah, that was, that was, that was nice. That was exciting. Yeah. And uh, is your, is your dad still with us? He is, he is, he's yeah. retired to his chagrin, I think, <laughs> but he is with us. Yes. He's doing okay. Yeah. So what, what was that like? Was he was he part of your journey? Was he a you know a consultant or an advisor for you? Um, in some regards, yeah. I mean, certainly I was able to get knowledge about you know how sort of the real world practice of cardiology worked. Could have some understanding of it. But at the same time, there's a there has been a generational shift in practice of medicine. So his experience didn't necessarily translate as well to mine several decades later. You know, there was really major shifts in sort of the fundamental dynamics of, of practice of medicine, that some things were easier, better, faster. Others were dramatically different in a more negative way. So it was sort of a, a mixed bag, but certainly gave me a lot of at least grounding of education of, to start you know, asking the right questions, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's dive into it. Heart disease is a problem. How big of a problem is it? It's a big, you know, I think it's the number one killer in the world is cardiovascular diseases. And that's a big umbrella group of, of diseases, but they, everyone would probably understand the common ones, heart attack, stroke, heart failure, you know, irregular heart rhythms. Generally, you know, probably kills about 19 million people a year across the world. So it's a huge problem, and and it's irrespective of country, continent, socioeconomic status. Even even Africa by 2030 is projected. You know, com non-communicable diseases, of which heart disease is the most common, is expected to surpass communicable diseases like malaria and infectious diseases by 2030 in Africa. And the rest of the continents are all far beyond that. So it's by far the world's most, you know, yeah. common disease, cause of disease and death. Yeah. And I know that, you know, part of what you're trying to do is educate people about heart disease and some of the myths around what it is and, and what it's not and its etiology and those types of things. So I, I just heard one, you know, or potentially one that I'll let you, you know, bust for me or correct me on. But, you know, I, I would have never have guessed number two things. One, that it's a global problem or, and two, that it's going to be a problem in places like Africa, because, you know, me being from the U.S., I just, you know, what I hear right, wrong, or indifferent is heart disease is primarily a, a U.S. problem because of our diet and our, and our, you know, 
penchant for overindulgence. That that's that's what I believed up until now. So to hear in Africa it's going to overtake is to me is is shocking. It's a, it's a global problem. There's no doubt of that, and it manifests in different ways in different countries, different regions. But still, same umbrella category for sure: cardiovascular diseases. And you know, part of it can be traced to yeah of course there are cultural sort of as you as you say sort of indulgences and patterns and behaviors sure but but you know remember that sort of non-communicable diseases the at least for cardiovascular a lot of it has to do with the underlying burden of common chronic disease so high blood pressure diabetes obesity smoke you know very common extremely widespread diseases are the primary driver of what people end up seeing and focusing and focusing on as heart disease a heart attack a stroke you know heart failure all those have resulted generally speaking not always but most of the time from decades of some underlying chronic problem and as the world has progressed as we have gone through an industrial revolution as we have you know our technologies have just advanced in an exponential way as tramp the the of freedom of transportation freedom of working from home the freedom from from you know as as the technology has allowed us to really diversify how we live and work the corollary to that is that generally it has led to a more sedentary lifestyle a one that is is very difficult to control your sort of overall calorie intake and very difficult to actually maintain a, a reasonably high level of calorie expenditure we have extremely you know nutrient rich foods and extremely low need to actually expend that energy we're no longer going out and you know killing antelope or buffalo or somewhere right i mean you just or walking miles you, just to get water you just on your phone you order something and all of a sudden 2000 calories arrive at your door and that's your lunch that's how easy it is. Has become so the ease and the conveniences of modern life have a side effect have a you know have a secondary effect and one of them is is the the really rapid rise and continuing rise of these chronic conditions that then lead to what what people see as you know cardiovascular disease in the future and also the fact that we're living longer despite what people might be hearing you know also is a contributor to that it wasn't that long ago where you know upper end life expectancy was you know you know mid 40s right, right. and so and, and we are living longer so at some point in time you know something a heart failure or a cancer is going to take out everybody at some point at some point right i mean that's that is the reality of age and and with the exception of those who hold out hope for you know the the indefinite longevity is at some point something's going to happen you know our bodies are not really built genetically to to go beyond a certain lifespan and so yes so things will happen and and we have good treatments for a lot of them and that's great but but it is somewhat inevitable that something will <laughs> Some will look. Yeah. So when it comes to to hypertension, define that for us. Hypertension is a is a condition. It is a disease, not just a risk factor. And we can talk about the difference there. But it's a disease that causes a, a increased pressure of blood inside the vessel walls of the arteries of your body, and it affects. We've been focusing on heart disease or cardiovascular disease, but hypertension or high blood pressure affects many different organ systems, not just the heart. And it does so in with two sort of principles. One, it has to be there for an extended period of time, meaning a person has to have a higher than normal blood pressure over long periods of time, generally years, many years. And over time, slowly, that high pressure affects the organs of our body, your eyes, your brain, your heart, your kidneys, your blood vessels, your reproductive system, your pancreas, all kinds of organs. And it slowly damages those organs and leads to the end effects of stroke, kidney problems, vibe problems, heart problems, etc. So that's what high blood pressure is. And that Hypertension, as as a disease, is the most common chronic disease in the world. It causes is 1.4 billion people in the world have it. 130 million people in the United States have it. And though we know a lot about it, and we know how to treat it, we know what affects it, we know you know what it does. The global control rates of hypertension, meaning the globally the number of percent of people who have high blood pressure who have it under control is 20%. And in the US, it's 26%. So even though we know a lot about it, and even though as widespread as it is, 
and as cheap, easy, and effective as the treatments are, we're not very good at managing it on a large scale. Yeah. And so how does somebody know if they suffer from hypertension? That's a good question. So you have to, you have to somehow check your blood pressure and you don't have any symptoms from it. That's the other downside of hypertension. It is totally silent. That's why it used to be called and still is the silent killer, right? You don't know. It's not like back in her knee pain, you're going to have pain and it's going to give you symptoms, but you don't know. Hypertension generally starts earlier in life than people think, 20s, 30s, and 40s. And those are the decades at which most people are not paying that much attention to their health. They are not routinely checking their blood pressures and vital signs, and they are not going to the doctor routinely. And so, but that is the time when hypertension generally starts. So the only way you know if you have it or not is by actually checking it, by monitoring it, and not just once, but repetitively. And that's the other sort of difficulty with hypertension, sort of traditional devices that you can check. Everyone knows what a blood pressure cuff is and knows what it looks like. You can check it, but it only gives you that reading at that exact point in time on that one day at that one moment. It does not tell you what's happening the next week, the next month, the next month. And what what happens with hypertension is not state. Our pressure continuously fluctuates. So if you capture that tiny little snapshot at a moment in time when your blood pressure looks good, you'll assume that overall your blood pressure is normal or is good and I'm fine and I don't need to think about it, but it actually might be the opposite. And so that's that's or the inverse the could be true as well. Or the inverse is true. Sometimes it is the inverse. A good example of that is what's called white coat hypertension. When someone goes to the doctor's office, usually, or a healthcare setting, they're sitting there, they're super nervous. They have like, you know, people with white coats on around them and they put on this cuff and they take it and they're nervous and the blood pressure is super high. But at home, if you checked it, it's normal. That's called white coat hypertension. And that can happen in up to 25 to 35% of individuals have white coat hypertension. And the only way that they would know that that their blood pressure is actually normal at home is this by routinely checking the blood pressure at home. And just, you know, the way that the traditional modalities exist and how they've designed, how they've been designed is that people generally don't follow through and do those things. It's pretty cumbersome to check your blood pressure and then you just don't know. And they just forget about it usually. Right. Well, well, doc, we'll just jump right into it. If you were to take my blood pressure, if I was to go white coat or not, I'm going to tell you that my blood pressure on average is going to be 147 over 89. That is that is what my blood pressure is when I wake up and I first take it. I do have a, a cuff and a monitor, and I have gone through phases of, of taking my blood pressure multiple times a day over the course of months, specifically for all the reasons that you just stated. And so the impetus for that for me was getting renewing my life insurance when I early 40s. I'm I'm 45 or 40. It'll be 46 here in a month or so. But but I'm you know I'm an educated man and I'm not you know I'm by no means am I the smartest person in the world. But I'm no dummy either. And when they send the nurse out to take you know vitals and draw blood and all that kind of stuff, and then I when I saw her and she's not the this nurse. They're not allowed to tell you anything. They're just there to to you know get your numbers and get out yeah, of there, right? right? And so right. but I'm not a dummy. When I saw the numbers on the cuff, I was like, oh, that is not that's not good. And so <laughs> yeah. So I did a deep dive on on hypertension, looked at all different types of things. You know, I, I am trained to read research and to, to look at stats and mm-hmm. those types of things. And so so I was I was pretty obviously pretty scared at first, but the more that I dove into it, I'm concerned overall. But yeah, 147 or over 89, I can pretty much guarantee you when I when I wake up and put the cuff on, that's what it's going to be. If I were just to show up anywhere, that that's what it's going to be. And I'll do it. You know, I, one of my things that I'm prone to is poison oak. So I got into some poison a few you know, a month I went down to get my, my prednisone because that's the only thing that works. And All right. throw the cuff on, yeah, I'm going to tell you it's 147 or over 88. And he's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, a, well, it's not good that you have hypertension. I mean, so, but, but the that's fact is, two, right. I mean, by definition, that is stage two over in the, by the U.S. definitions, it's 140 over 90 and above is either or either the top number right. is over 140 or the bottom number is over 90. And so you would the criteria for stage two hypertension. But the, the good news is, you know about it. You've been, you've been, you're now aware of it. You're engaged with your own data and you can understand it and you can take action. You can figure out what the next steps are. And as you said, it's not necessarily super complicated what the next steps are. And they may not be easy to achieve long-term practically for 
for you know human behavior but but you know that there's an issue and the fact is that almost half of the people who have hypertension don't even know they have it so so kudos to you at least in in kind of doing that work and and making yourself aware yeah so and, and i you know and i i very much believe in a you know a pyramid model of change or and a pyramid model of most anything right that the stuff toward the top of the pyramid represents things that might have an effect but it's really the base of the pyramid that's important and so you know diet sleep and exercise are you know for me are at the base and so you know making sure that i you know hit 10,000 steps a day is is one of the things that i try to do you know exactly right working from home i'm a firm believer in you know, there's a trade-off in the comforts that we have worked hard to achieve as a society. And one of them is, is like you just said, you can push a button and 2000 calories can come, you know, right yeah. to your door without much effort. Yeah, it's basically uh, right. You know, I think it's a, it's a good point you make and, and it's, it's simultaneous, you know, demonstrates our knowledge, but some, somewhat our, our, our lack of specificity in that knowledge. So for example, almost everyone who, who, like I talked to, who has hypertension, just like you did, says, okay, I'm going to do some research. And I, and you could probably name even before doing the research, the five that I'm going to even tell you about that, that we're going to right. talk about. We're going to talk about diet. We're going to talk about salt. We're going to talk about exercise. We're going to talk about weight loss. And we might talk about alcohol intake. Okay. Those are the common things. And, and what we do, Metasystem guidelines, we recommend the litany of interventions to everybody. Now, behavioral interventions are super difficult, right? To actually make an impact, you have to consistently make a change across all of those things. Let's say if we're saying all those things are important, and you have to do those every single day. You have to pay attention to your sodium intake every single day. That's the first thing almost, you know, you read every time you read about hypertension, the, one of the first com most common topics is how do you reduce your sodium intake? Everybody knows we're going to talk about it. But here's the thing. Sodium intake is but for about 50% of people who have hypertension, 50% of people are what's called salt sensitive. It means their hypertension reacts to sodium intake. The other 50% are not salt sensitive. So this is a very clear example about how generic the recommendations are. We're going to talk to that person. We're going to you know, discuss, and that person is going to try to make a change, hopefully, in their sodium intake and expend the energy, time, and resources needed to start looking at packages to calculate their sodium intake. It's extremely difficult to do consistently. And only 50% of people are actually going to repeat, reap any significant benefit. And so this is an example about how in hypertension, we know these levers, generally speaking. But what we don't really know yet is levers to you individually are are you salt sensitive or would your time energy and and resources be better spent going on a three mile a day walk because your exercise your your blood pressure perhaps might be more tied to aerobic activity or another person they might we might say well for that person their weight is the biggest component and maybe they really should focus on weight loss and that's where they should be spending their energy and resources and time. And even before we even start talking about medications, we're just giving people generally way too many recommendations. And all of them might make some difference, but very few people can actually you know, engage and modify their entire lifestyle to meet all of those criteria. And so it's a very generic one size fits all sort of approach, which I think actually does a fairly significant disservice to actual adoption of it. And that's that's really a lot of what we think about and what I think about at Actia is how do we start getting personalized? How can we start you know, tinkering with interventions and seeing what actually makes an impact for an individual? And I think that would be, yeah, that would absolutely. be very helpful. Yeah. yeah. I've learned to talk about that as the problem with, with indexing. And I'm in mm -hmm. the right now in my, I'm a full-time professor. I'm teaching research methods right now. And so covering, covering the bell curve, right. right. And so yeah. like, you know, what you described was the protocol that if we just deliver this generic protocol on average, right, it should right. help people reduce right. their blood pressure. Right? The, the problem is where do I, as an individual fall, actually fall Correct. on that yeah. bell curve, yeah. right? That's the problem. Yeah. And do we have a system that's two-sided, meaning the on the on the care side of things and, and then on my side of things, right? Because you, you could offer me the best care, but if I'm not willing to to take it seriously Absolutely. and follow through yeah. on it, it's yeah. not gonna do much good. But do we have a system where we can help people understand, like you were saying, the the you know, salt sensitive or not? 
And so somebody may go through all the effort. And I think this is, I'm trained in behaviorism. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So if you, if you get somebody geared up to say, cut out salt. And, and I was raised by my grandparents. And so blood pressure runs in, in mm. our family, problematic blood pressure. Mm. So I remember using potassium salt on mm. everything, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and just kind of got used to it. But so somebody could do that. Somebody could eliminate salt for, you know, three months, four months, six months and see no change in their blood pressure. Right. And then they think, well, what's the uh, point? And I'm so then they give scrap up. the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Just going to give up. It's so it's a human behavior. And the the other thing is that there's not a specific way to gain any sort of sense of knowledge about those individual profiles from the way we traditionally look at blood pressure. When we look at blood pressure, it's very binary. I mean, with small gradations, you're normal, elevated, stage one, stage two. That's it. That's all we know. So, And we know the higher is bad and lower is better. And there are some other sort of pro- basic profiles, but for the vast majority of people, that's how we talk about, look at blood pressure. We don't know, like say, let's take you as an example. We don't really know. Okay, so you're stage two hypertensive, but you're a stage two hypertensive that's going to be not salt sensitive, but you're alcohol sensitive and you're exercise sensitive, but your weight is actually fairly reasonable. It's not going to have, play a significant role to try to lose so we don't have that detailed profiling on people. And one of the, you know, at least from, you know, what we're doing at Actia is we're building out those sort of complex data set and looking at blood pressure in a different way that, you know, will allow us to hopefully start building in on somebody's app where they can access it routinely in between physician visits, a personalized profile and a personalized recommendation sort of platform. And I think hopefully we'll be able to engage people in a more meaningful way, in a more significant way for the long term. Absolutely. So love for you to expand on exactly what you're doing there, but it also remembers reminds me of my, my neighbor is a, a medical sales rep and same thing like she actually you, you're going to know this product but she she sells the product that embeds into the chest so you can actually you know take mm-hmm. the ongoing you know was yeah, it yeah. ekg yeah yeah yeah, so, monitor. yeah ekg monitor and so the so the actia is really work has developed a core technology as a way to measure blood pressure in a more continuous fashion routinely and passively automatically using a, a, a worn device in addition to software and in a cloud-based algorithm. And essentially you get routinely get multiple measurements a day, up to 27 measurements every single day while you're lying down, while you're sleeping, while you're walking, not while you're walking, but while you're while you're sitting, standing in different body positions. And so what over time happens is we can build a much more complex visualization pattern of what somebody's blood pressure is really doing over time. And then you can actually do interventions and see what someone is you know, responding to. You can say, okay, December, here's my pattern, not just my level one, here's my pattern, here's my average, here's my time in an optimal range. Then I did dry January. And let me see what happened after that. Let me see what happened towards the end of January. How did my patterns change? What was my average? And you actually have done an, an, a controlled experiment in your own body looking at those patterns. And then you can say, okay, dry January really did impact my blood pressure. So really alcohol does make a difference for me. I, I really should, you know, cut down over the long term. Or you say, I'm going to go on a walking red. And sometimes this happens all the time in practice. People say, doc, I do go on my, I've started walking three miles a day. I haven't really lost a lot of weight though, but I, but I've been walking, you know, routinely and I, and I have a hard time figuring out, is it helping? So the same ideas, you could start, start to see those patterns. You could say, you well, it doesn't really hasn't really helped. Maybe that weight is, you know, we need to focus on that more. Or no, look, you're despite not losing weight, here's what your pattern has been doing and it looks much better. And so really starting to understand on a personal, personalized level what somebody responds to and how they respond so that you can build out a more individualized plan. And the second thing is that, you know, people interact with the healthcare system, generally speaking, a couple times a year at most, generally. And for what? Generally 15, 20 minutes, you might get, that's lucky if you get a physician to sit with you for 20 minutes at a time and talk you talk you through five other problems or other whatever other things that are on your mind. So the reality is, is that something that affects your healthcare that is so uh, chronic, so every day, it's something that you need to engage with on a routine basis over time. We are trying to take advantage of technology in some, in some way that where somebody has a portal that they look at 
all the time, routinely, multiple times a day, and they can interact with their data and interact with a program that really helps support the health, not to take the place of a healthcare organization, but helps broaden the healthcare reach so that people are getting that knowledge and getting that feedback on an ongoing basis. And so they really can be empowered themselves to make that change and to really drive that process themselves. And as a physician, that's when you see the best results. When somebody, when the person actually says, I'm going to own this, this is this is my body. This is my life. I'm going to own this. And I want to know all about this. And I want to have all the tools I can get myself. And I'll go back to the physician and you show, you know, we talk about the, the you know, different aspects and knowledge and medications, all these other things, but the, the patient themselves is owning that process. That's really what we want to empower. Yeah, absolutely. So if I can read between the lines, let me let me guess at something and again tell me if I'm if I'm way off base here. But you know, the path that you were on, you know, the standard path, like you said, where the typical person engages you twice a year at best, right? And usually it's probably like reactive is a, a right. preventative thing. And so you may not even have, you know, the focus or the time to to look at overall health because you're you're addressing something acute, right? So you could keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. You could keep yeah. operating that way. Sure. But you yourself are thinking that there people need more. They're there or they need something different. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to have an impact the way that I want to have an impact, something different has to occur in the Absolutely. way that, that I approach this. Right. And so, you know, my hat's off to you for because that's a bold move, right? Because there's probably a lot of people that are saying, Jay, why do you care? Right. Jay, just 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 take it easy. Just keep doing what's <laughs> what's average or what's expected. Yeah. I mean, it's it there's there's a lot of reasons that that it is the way that, that healthcare is built the way it is. And, and a lot of it has to do with incentives, like everything. It's built around reactive care, it's built around hospital, it's built around procedures, surgeries. You know, that's how all the incentives are aligned. And 75% of the US healthcare spend is on results of chronic diseases, effects, end effects, procedures, tests, surgeries, hospitalizations, 3% is spent on prevention. So it's such a mismatch. It's such an imbalance that it's so clear and nobody really argues. It. It's pretty clear. And so I think in a way though, there's people, patients, and patients include me and you and every physician in the United States, because in the end, we're going to be patients too at some point. Patients and people really care if they are honest with it, they really, most of them care, would say, well, I'd, I'd rather some problem from happening if I could. And so they are the ones that are the most interested, invested, and engaged in a, in a, in prevention. It's just that I think we, as an, as a medical industry have to kind of come up with those solutions that are actually meaningful. And that's not easy, but that's what really we're working on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's it's the reality, though, that there's a couple of different things. And, you know, in the social sciences, this has been researched. You know, one of them, a lot of behavior change knowledge comes out of smoking cessation studies, yeah, right? Sure. And, yeah. But people, people will underestimate the risk that they put themselves in based mm -hmm. on their everyday behavior. And so yes. this is mostly, you know, especially today, if you were, if you see them smoking on the street, you can ask them the question, Hey, do you know that smoking is, is bad for your health? And they'll say, yeah, I, I know that. Yeah. And then you can ask them, well, tell me some ways that you know that smoke, you know, could be negatively impacting your health and, and then rattle off, you know, you know, lung cancer, throat cancer, heart attack, stroke, they can, they can rattle it off. But then you ask them this next question, which is, so are, are you personally concerned that your smoking is negatively impacting your health? And you'll either get a, no, I'm not concerned because I don't really care about my health, or they have this magical thinking that mm -hmm. it's not going to happen to them, yeah, right? Yeah. It's going right. to happen to somebody else. Somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, and that's, that true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's the same way. I mean, smoking is a very clear example of it, but it's the same way with chronic disease like hypertension. And especially in the way that it's talked about, you know, physicians even talk about it as a risk factor, not a disease. And it's one of the issues is it's so common so widespread and so, you know, big in scope, you know, you hear 1.4 billion, 130 million Americans, one in two seniors have it. It's starts to lose urgency or meaning because people just say, well, I guess I'll get it if everyone else has kind of gotten it and there's pills I can take to take and I'll be okay. And, and, you know, and so there's not an urgency. There's not a personal urgency to do something about a chronic disease that they cannot feel or see. And, and I think that is a challenge. It is certainly a challenge. And one of the reasons that, that it's been so difficult to really get 
significantly better control rates in hypertension. So there's at least three things I hope that we can touch on. One is you made a statement early on when we were going back and forth about, you know, my number being, you know, you know, alert signals in the U.S. So I know that different countries have different takes at different cut points for what it's considered stage one or stage two hypertension, or however they classify it. So it, that's the case, right? If I if I were in France or if I were in in New Zealand, that you know, there would be a different criteria applied to my to my blood pressure. It would be there are generally three sort of bodies that make recommendations around the world. And the 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 ideas are the same. It's just the cut points are slightly different. One forty seven over eighty eight would be classified as hypertension in any country. Um, <laughs> but but in 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 other kinds, it would be, you know, stage grade one or grade grade one usually, and depending on the level of grade two. And there's some go up to grade three. So you might get a different grading, but the idea is the same. I also think that that, that loses the, the idea of the grading system and just kind of these episodic point measurements and where you fall is we lose a concept that is, I think, crucial for hypertension. And that is the danger of high blood pressure doesn't exist on that day and that time when you measure it. It doesn't exist tomorrow and it doesn't exist the next day. The primary danger of hypertension is based on time. How long in years, years, how long, how much time do you spend outside of the optimal range over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? Because that is what it takes. That is the primary driving fact for how hypertension affects your brain, heart, eyes, kidneys, you know, all the different other organ systems. It's time. And in the current classification of hypertension and all the standard standard bodies, there doesn't exist a concept of time in that grades and say grading, you know, criteria, or even in the measurement criteria. People know this physiologically, this is well known. It's not some mystery or some new concept, but it's that the tools that we use to measure blood pressure are based on only one point in time. And there's very few tools out there that actually there are no tools that that look at blood pressure over more than even one day. And so that is the concept that that, you know, one of the things we focus on at Actia is how much or how how far outside the normal range is someone's blood pressure over a long period of time. And we've designed our whole product and experience around that concept of time, because that is what is most closely tied physiologically to how the blood pressure actually affects our body. And so that is, you know, that is really a concept that is missing, I think, from current, you know, standards. So it's that it's that hockey stick effect that's going to happen, whether you are investing in your health or neglecting your health, right? Meaning if you neglect your health, yeah, you're going to be, like you said, it's not this time, not tomorrow, it's not the day after, but years, but all of a sudden, bam, you hockey stick in the the wrong direction. Something happens. Or or the inverse happens, right? You invest in your health, you're doing the right things, but you're not really, not necessarily right. But then all of a sudden over time, you don't have one of those negative events, but we don't, your incentive discussion is is important, right? We as a culture or as a society, we don't celebrate when bad things don't happen, right? right. Know, like like how many yes. times do we take you know yeah. you know somebody who's sixty plus and be like, hooray, you never had a stroke, <laughs> yeah, right? No. Or you never had a heart attack. You're awesome. Yeah. Right? You're right. You're right. That's we do the opposite. Somebody yep. who has the stroke, right? Right. Or yep. somebody who has the heart attack and then makes the lifestyle change. We well, celebrate them. We celebrate them. I mean, yeah. they go, they go on talks, they go on podcasts, they Absolutely. write books. Yeah. They and, the, and, and that's all fine, well, and good. And, and hopefully they raise awareness, but I, I agree with you. It's not, it's unfortunately for them after the event has happened. And the real opportunity is actually to try to prevent, prevent those, those things from happening. And so, you know, that the real win is the boring one, the one that where nothing happens right. and you yeah. just go on about your active, healthy, happy life. And yeah. yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, or I'm certain you're familiar with this and, and, you know, you, you got to be careful. You might pop my bubble, but I, but I did get some encouragement or some inspiration or some anxiety tension relief from the, the firefighter pushup study. You okay. familiar with that research? I am vaguely familiar with it. I don't know the yeah. full details, but I knew, I do recall yeah. this one. So when I read it, I was, you know, so, uh, and again, I, I'm coming out of a corrections career. And so stress is, you know, I was there for 22 and a half years. So stress is definitely a big factor, I believe, prior to COVID hitting. Yes. When I was taking this seriously, I had 
reduced my numbers 15 to 20 points on, on both sides, right? That's pretty great. Right. And, and it was diet, sleep, and exercise doing, I was, I'm a big believer in, in Wim Hof breathing. When in one session of Wim Hof, I can, I can still today reduce those numbers by 20 mm -hmm. points on both sides, right? So I've learned to do that when I, to, you know, mm -hmm. offset my white coat, you know, factor <laughs> when I, when I go in, but. So I was on this and I was tracking, you know, my mugger, mm -hmm. you know, I can see a graph and, yeah, you know, okay. I was tracking down, but in my world in corrections and I was responsible for a facility that all just went out the window. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. So I think it's a combination of, you know, the stress, but then all of the losing sight of the intentional behaviors that yeah. I was engaged with, right. You know, having my diet dialed in, you know, and sleep was out of whack and all those things. Right. And so yeah. I think stress was leading the charge that threw out, you know, threw off my system out of place there. But, but I did run across that study and it said something like, if you could do 40 pushups in under two minutes, because in, in, in the world of, of being a firefighter, they're one of the few first responders that have to do a, a PT mm -hmm. in order to maintain mm -hmm. their ability yeah. to do the work. I'm it's aware, not the yeah. case for police officers. It's not the case for corrections officers, mm -hmm. but in firefighting world, it is. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there is a long, there, there's a, there's a lot of data there to be studied. Anyway, it said that if you could do 40 pushups in under two minutes that your risk for a cardiovascular event is, is way down. And so I threw the article down and I, I banged out the push. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I can do this. And so that also helped me to maintain that, that momentum of making mm -hmm. the physical state at a, at a certain level as well. Yeah. Right. Because I know that that ability to, to do that can go away if I don't, if I don't keep up on it. So, I mean, that's, that's the reality of our bodies, right? Use it or lose it. And, and, the, you know, the, it's an important point of reinforcement, hopefully positive reinforcement that is very difficult to, to get when it comes to physical activity and certainly around your blood pressures. Like there's not, unless you're really, really diligent, you've got spreadsheets and you've made graphs and all these things. It's very difficult to see the impact, let's say your breathing, your exercise, your, your, your sort of awareness and, and the positive things you're doing on your blood pressure. Most people don't see that. Most people, because they take a reading here and there and it's up and down and up and down. And they're like, I, I, is it making an effect? I, I don't really know. A lot of these interventions, like especially exercise and alcohol and weight loss, don't have like a generally have a 20 point millimeter of mercury impact. Studies show, you know, five to six millimeters of mercury is a good result from even like 10 kilos of weight loss. That, like, that's an result. So that's not exactly exciting, right? I mean, like five to six millimeters of mercury doesn't get someone I'm like really stage two, Yay. you know? Yeah. It's just like, ah, okay. And, and, and it's very difficult to see that, even see that impact. If you're taking episodic point measurements, if you're not getting that trend then it's hard to see, and then you lose that positive reinforcement. So again, one of the things that we have an opportunity to do in digital health is by taking the data and building in software layers around it to give people digital feedback loops so that hopefully will encourage them to maintain, to keep momentum, maintain what they're doing, whether it's stress reduction, exercise, you know, some exercise program or alcohol reduction or whatever it is to really try to keep that momentum going and building goals for themselves so that they can hit it. We see, we see this kind of, you know, these kind of activities all the time in like fitness track apps and right. You have a goal, here's your momentum. You've done this many, you get an award if you get this many, you know, workouts in, in a month and, and that's all great. You know, it, it keeps you going back to it. And in some sense, keeps you engaged with it. Hopefully we don't have that in chronic disease management. You know, we don't have that kind of, you know, carrots out there and, and what we can build it though. And that's, that's part of the implementation of this in the real world. It's like, you need the technology to fit and, and the science to back it up. But at the same time, we need to deploy the, in the real world where people live with real lives, not in any some ivory tower elite academic place. Like it needs to work in real life. And what does that mean? It means engaging with people with the behaviors and 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 sort of the, the attitudes that we all have as human beings. So we really kind of have to, you know, implement it in that regard. Yeah. Jay, Dr. Jay, when, when does medication become part of the protocol? But generally, if you look at the guidelines after about three to six months of, if someone has modest high blood pressure to begin with stage one high blood pressure or elevated, then you can give them about three to six months to try to make a 
change in their lifestyle. After that period of time, and again, very few of us in physicians and even people really understand what that person is doing to make those interventions. We give them their laundry list and then we don't really know what happens. And then after about six sure. months, they come back, the blood pressure might be the same. And we say, okay, it's time to time to think about medications. So, Jen, you're given that time, that, that sort of three to six month grace period. If someone's stage two and above, the recommendations are to start a medication pretty much right away and still to work on those lifestyle changes. And then if you are you get a good enough result, you can always back down on medications. Medications aren't forever. If you if someone loses weight and exercises and, and they may need less medication, they may be able to come off medication, which is all great. But the guidelines suggest that at stage two and above, you just go ahead and start a medicine right away and then you know titrate, tinker with it in the, depending on their their overall levels. Yeah. And so thanks for that. And, you know, that three to six month to realize a, a lifestyle change is, is that to me, that sounds fairly arbitrary, you know, given that we just talked about how yeah. the impact of this is we're talking about years, you know, partial decades, decades, right? Is that a good proxy for, you know, if can somebody get on on track in three to six months? Yes or no. Yes, then we can go this direction or no, then that's a predictor that they're probably not going to be able to, you know, get the lifestyle changes and dialed in. It's fairly arbitrary with the with the idea in mind that like you just said. I mean, I think even more so, it's 3 to 6 months, but th there's no really routine way that somebody is tracking their intervention. That's the other part. Is like we've given them the laundry list of here's five things to do. We come back in six months. We kind of just sort of say, how's it going with those? With those, right. well, I doc, right. I tried this, I tried that. But it's right. very subjective. There's no objectivity to it, generally speaking. People don't, it's so difficult. Let's just take sodium as an example. It's so difficult to track your sodium intake. Because many things, especially if you eat out at all, you don't know what's in that and you don't really have a control over sodium. Sauces, anything packaged has sodium in it. So it's very difficult. And they say, well, I've tried to reduce my sodium intake, but do you even, does anyone even know how much sodium they're generally eating? I don't know, you know, and it's extremely difficult to calculate that. So there's a good example about like how there's no realistic way right now to measure that impact. So if you're going to look at an intervention, you have to have to know what is the intervention you're making. And right now we don't even know that intervention. We have no way to track it. So then how can you possibly evaluate its effect? Yeah. You can't. So yeah. exercise is a little easier to track somewhat. Weight is probably the easiest, right? You can measure your weight day one and day uh, three months. And okay, so you can make some. Yeah, scale doesn't lie. That's about it. You know, but beyond that, it's very difficult to track those other behavioral things right now. Although, you know, I think there are opportunities to, to build this in again to something that, that people are using daily, like their devices or, or et cetera. But, but that is, that's the reality. So yeah, in, in reality, it's sort of arbitrary and it's not very scientific. Yeah. In the coaching world, I, I came across some, some data and actually it's borne out in the book peak. So it might be helpful for you as you move forward. It's definitely helpful for me is that people usually on average, right, bell curve, follow through with 60% of the plan whether somebody else gave them the plan or they mm -hmm. created their own plan. Mm -hmm. And so that's the idea that if you can create something that that will work, if 60% of it is implemented and executed, then you'll get better results on, mm -hmm. on average mm -hmm. because you can kind of gauge this is where yeah. most people are going to follow through. That makes right? sense. Yeah. yeah. I think that e even, even if you prescribe somebody a medication, right? Okay. Well, we can, we can safely predict that you're going to follow through with this medication prescription, you know, 60%, right? So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think that, you know, I, I try to keep that in mind when I'm designing things or working with people that the average person is going to, you know, follow through to a 60% degree, no matter kind of what. That's a good what, concept. Uh, I will definitely take yeah. into account as we build further. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. You've been super helpful to me and I know my audience will gain benefit as well, but Take, a, take another minute or two and really describe what Actia is and how people can find it, how, how people engage with it, and, and who is it really designed for? Well, it's a, it's a you know, it's an over-the-counter system that, that has a combination of a wearable as well as software and services that go with it. It's really designed for people who are concerned about or who have hypertension. That is our primary focus.
Right now, it's available in Europe and UK, and it's going to be available in Canada and some other countries in the next few months. We are working towards a US launch, you know, hopefully in the next year or so, but it's not going to be, it's not available right now in the US as we work through, you know, regulatory requirements and things. FBA. But, you know, to stay update, you can always go to actia.com, our website. There's a, you can sign up for, you know, push updates from our newsletter, and that'll just continuously give you, you know, new updates as we have more publications, more news, more information, and we just push out to all our interested fans. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to, you know, enter in the next year or so into the U.S. and and just keep building. Awesome. Yeah, Love it. Th this is primarily primarily a, a, a mindset pod. So, you know, I really do appreciate you coming on and I appreciate our conversation. But I think mindset is play, plays a big role here in what we've been talking about, right? And yes, so totally. Dr. Shaw went to the person who's listening who knows that they have you know, some risk factors for heart disease, stroke, or they, they struggle with, you know, hypertension, but they're in a place of what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. Is, is this effort really going to amount to anything? Speak to them in terms of, you know, their mindset around turning this around and really being able to increase the quality of life by making one of these changes. What, what would you tell them? I would tell them that after being in cardiology for 15 years, that sooner or later, either they themselves or one of their loved ones will be sitting in my office or somebody like me saying, why did this happen? Why did I have to have surgery? Why did I have to have, why did I have this stroke? Why did I have this hospitalization? And the most significant and primary cause of almost all of those things in cardiology, cardiovascular diseases is hypertension and chronic diseases, similar to obesity, diabetes, and the like. So when they say that, I unfortunately have to kind of tell them, look, this happened now, but it really started 20 years ago. It really started 30 years ago. And your opportunity to make a difference, to make a change, to try to prevent this was then, not now. And now we're focused on the future and what we'll do to try to prevent some other you know, episode, other complication issue. And that's great. But the real opportunity was before you ever met me. And, and it will affect all of us. Whether it's you personally or whether it's one of your loved ones, one in two Americans, you know, by the age of 65 has this problem and cardiovascular diseases are by far the most common cause of death and disease in the United States and across the world. It is going to affect you in some way, some way, some regard. So it is personal. It is urgent. And even though you don't feel it, it's there. So that's what I would say. Do it before you come have to come to see me. Right, right. And you had did you had alluded to the difference between Western and, and Eastern philosophy and medicine. So I think I heard a an Eastern maxim. Right, the the best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago. Yeah. The next best time is now. Yeah. Right. right. So yeah. So even even yeah. if somebody does find themselves in that place, yep. Okay. You're you're dealing with twenty years of ignoring you know signs and symptoms of the problem, but you can't do anything about it now. Or right? now. Yeah. But you can plant that tree now. Right? Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the window Dr. doesn't Shaw, close. Uh, yeah. Doctor Shaw, I'm indebted to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait for this one to get produced and out there because I think it's this critical. It's a life or death message, right? That, that's yeah. the truth. We're not making that up. So, well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I feel so blessed to be able to have a conversation like that with a a doctor, a medical doctor, a cardiologist, a director of medical services. Uh, quite the pedigree there, and his knowledge and expertise on all things heart health was truly a blessing to me. And I hope you as the listener also were able to get tremendous value out of that as well. If that's the case, and you know somebody who is looking at a struggle with heart disease or high blood pressure or hypertension, send them this episode and better yet, uh, have them get in contact with Dr. Jay Shaw as well. And uh, look into his wearable fitness heart health tracker. I think that's going to be an amazing game changer. Got to get the FDA to get on the stick and approve it here in the U.S. though. As always, I want to offer a huge thanks to my listeners. If you find this episode of the Upgraded Life podcast helpful, do all the things that you know how to do. Leave it a five-star review. Uh, give it a thumbs up. Whatever you can do, wherever you're listening to this episode, uh, give it some love on the socials. That just helps me, helps the algorithm, helps the powers that be to let the world know that this is a valuable resource for people. As always, I have some special offers for folks, and particularly you listeners of the Upgraded Life podcast. You know that I've been helping men with 
uh, destructive anger. I've been helping them to develop the skills necessary in order to get complete control over anger. So if you're a man and you're listening to this and you've been given an ultimatum, get this fixed or else. Uh, don't waste any time and don't work with somebody who isn't an expert. I'm going to bring you expert intervention using time tested and proven skills and tools to help you get complete control of your anger. You can find all that information about my anger resolution program in the show notes below. I've been able to show more and more people how to boost their education about all things blockchain, all things Bitcoin. I have two e-courses and a community to support your knowledge in those areas. If you're starting from zero knowledge, that's okay. Uh, my Crypto 101 course will help you get to up to speed. If you are beyond uh, Crypto 101 and you want to learn how to start investing in crypto, then my Crypto 201 course is going to be for you. Those are under the brand, The Ultimate Crypto Startup. And again, you can find the links to those programs in the show notes below. Now I want to talk to you about one of the most exciting opportunities that I have ever been able to offer the people in my audience, in my community, those people that follow me. So here it is. I'd say over the last three to four years, I've been plugged into a particular community. And this community has grown and evolved over time. And it has now gotten to the place to where I am able to help onboard people into this community. Why would you want to be part of this community? Let me tell you, if you've been tracking or following me over the last handful of years, you probably have asked the question, how does Nick do all this stuff? How did he figure out how to launch a podcast? How does he run social media channels? How did he convert his income from a traditional nine to five job to a non-standard online business revenue platform where I get to work when I want and however much I want, depending on what the need is at the time. Well, I'm here to tell you, I didn't do it all on my own. Of course, I had to take my own action. I had to put in my own effort, but I've been supported by a community for the last handful of years. And without that community, I would have not been able to do any of the things that I'm doing right now. That community is known as the Guardian Academy. And the Guardian Academy has everything that anybody needs to upgrade their life and to live the life that they truly want. The Guardian Academy offers an online community that you have access to 24-7. They offer weekly calls with true masters in all sorts of disciplines, ranging from real estate to human development to creating online revenue streams you name it. Anything that has to do with humans being better humans, the Guardian Academy has something to offer you. When you're a member of the Guardian Academy, you also have access to live events that happen several times a year. So here's my offer. I only have the capacity to help maybe about five people join the Guardian Academy because it will take a partnership between in order to meet all of the requirements. It's not a simple buy your way in, join and get started. You have to put in some work and I'm offering to help you do the work so that you can be a full-fledged member of the Guardian Academy. So if you're interested in that and you wanna know more about how to get the process started, there'll be a link in the show notes below or you could go to the website www.tgaportal.com. There'll be a couple of videos there for you to watch. And then if you're still interested, fill out the form and that'll get you on my email list. And I'll be sure to reach out to you and give you all the information that you need. Again, I only have capacity to work with about five people to join the Guardian Academy with me being the guide. So if you have any interest at all in that, I would say don't delay. Fill out that form. Let me know that you're interested because it's going to be the first five. And after that, I don't know. I may not ever do it again, uh, but I am going to be committed to five people who want to join the Garden Academy. I'll leave you here with a, another final thank you for being in my audience. Thank you for listening to the Upgraded Life podcast. This is me, Dr. Nick Sotelo, urging you to do something today that will upgrade your life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Upgraded Life podcast. This show doesn't exist without you, the listeners, and so I appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to show your appreciation back to me and to this podcast, there's a couple ways to do that. One way is to be subscribed to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you are an Apple user, you can go over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. All of those things help. And now I want to talk about two projects that I have going that are out there that I think are very important if you're the right person for them. So the first project is my anger resolution program. And this is for men, fathers that own businesses that have anger that's completely out of control. And if that's you, I have developed a program specifically for that so that you can get complete control of your anger, that you can rebuild the relationship with your loved ones, and that you can make your business more profitable. That is all contained in my anger resolution program. If you want the info about that, check out the show notes and there'll be a link there for you for anger resolution. The other project that I have going, which is equally as important in my mind, and it's a lot of fun, is based around blockchain and cryptocurrency education. So if you've listened to this podcast this year, in 2023, you will have heard that several of them have focused on cryptocurrency. And that's not by accident. That's been a big part of my uh, free time, my extra time, and my financial strategy uh, over the last uh, 18 months or so. So I have founded, together with some partners, a organization called The Ultimate Crypto Startup, and we offer crypto education. Our Crypto 101 course is completely free, and it is designed for the person who knows traditional finance, and they're curious about the world of decentralized finance. So if that's you, but you, you don't even know what a Bitcoin is, you don't even know what blockchain is or how blockchain technology works, Crypto 101 is exactly what you need to build that knowledge into you so that way you can look at the world of decentralized finance from an informed vantage point. So Crypto 101, if you want info on that, again, look in the show notes and you will find the link for that course. All right, my listeners to the Upgraded Life podcast, I'm going to sign off for now and I'm going to urge you to do something as soon as this show is done to upgrade your life to boost your mindset. Take action today.